Hey everyone, thanks for joining in on the REI Dad podcast. Today's guest doesn't need much of an introduction. Super cool guy out of London, Ontario, very successful investor and YouTuber, Matt McKeever. We touched on a lot of things including house hacking, scaling, and one of my personal favorite topics, the fire movement. Hope you enjoy it. Matt McKeever, thank you so much for coming on the REI Dad podcast. Thanks, Wayne. Glad to be here. Matt, I, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking back to like the first time I heard about you and it, it's funny. I remember distinctly how I came across you and I was looking for some podcasts, some YouTube videos for while, on my drive to work. So I'll, I look up bigger pockets and of course it's all American based. So I type in bigger pockets, Canada and look who comes up right at the top. <laughs> Nice. That that means there are keyword stuffings working. That's good. That's that's how I came across you, man. And then, yeah, I mean, I I downloaded probably. I, I listened to a lot. I listened to a lot of podcasts, a lot of YouTube videos while I'm driving. Probably fifty, and then just went through them for the next two weeks. So, you were uh, you got a lot of great content, and I think that uh, most people who are listening to this podcast or watching know that as well. That you are the face of Canadian real estate content these days and I absolutely love what you're doing um and you know what like there's so many notes like so many different directions that I want to go with this podcast because you know you've covered just about everything but the one thing I wanted to start with was one of the first um topics that I downloaded from what you were covering around that time and that was the fire movement Mm -hmm. and it was like perfect time for me in my life because that's I'm like shit somebody else understands it so do you want to kind of explain what the fire movement is and what it's all about absolutely yeah i'd love to because that's really why i got into real estate in the first place um and i think for a lot of us real estate is really just a vehicle to get control of our financial lives it's a very understandable business it's a business that's been around for a long time but again it's really just a business vehicle to an end and for most of us, that ends as financial freedom or control over our financial futures. Right. So the FIRE movement simply stands for financial independence, retire early. And you know, if we're g- going to look back on the genesis of the whole FIRE movement, a lot of people will mention books like Your Money or Your Life. Uh, that's definitely a big one, as well as Rich Dad, Poor Dad, even though that was a lot more real estate oriented. For myself, the way I kind of discovered the FIRE movement was early 20s. I just read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Wealthy Barber, The Millionaire Next Door, all those amazing personal finance books that I'd recommend anyone read. And I was like, okay, cool. There's a blueprint here. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be that crazy Canadian that retires at 55 years. I'm going to live that freedom 55 lifestyle and I'm going to do it because of real estate. And I was really fired up and I thought that that was going to be my path to success. And then along the way, I was uh, subscribe to Million Dollar Journey, which is a great uh, online uh, blog for any Canadians looking for great sources of information. Mm-hmm. And they had referenced this early retirement extreme. I was like, ooh, that sounds interesting. I was like, I love the idea of retiring early. And that's right. really, that's where I got introduced to the FIRE movement. But the FIRE movement can take on a lot of different flavors. And to me, it's a giant spectrum. The way I like to view it is, All of us should get control of our financial lives and build that financial fortress of solitude, in my opinion. Each of us will have different needs and requirements in that regards. I'm a single dude. 
you know, living in Canada with a great healthcare system, my needs are extremely low. Other people may be in a slightly different position, but I love the idea of what they call lean fire, which is what's the bare minimum you need to survive. And a lot of us, if we were to really cut down our spending to the bone, we'd actually be shocked at how little money we need, especially if you compare with, if you can pair it, sorry, with a few other important financial strategies like house hacking. When you put that together, all of a sudden you don't need much. And for myself, I actually did the numbers. I was like, Ooh, wow. If I'm house hacking, if I was making like $2,000 a month passive, I'd be living a really good life. Like I could literally maintain my existing lifestyle and be quite content. And so I think I discovered that 21, 22, 23 around there. And by 25, it had fully like, I'd become obsessed with it. I was like real estate investing. That's going to be my path to fire. And literally I was this guy that I knew the importance of like wearing or owning your goals. So I downloaded this app on my cell phone that would just count down the days to anything you wanted. So at 25, I put in my 35th birthday. And it's kind of funny because I'm 35 years old now. So this was 10 years ago. And I can remember at parties and stuff, people being like, hey, Matt, what's new with you? And I would like whip out my phone and be like, oh, in like 2,758 days, I'm going to be retired. And it was just one of those funny ways to have a conversation starter. And I see you're dying right now, Wayne. But for me, it was a way to wear my goals and make people aware of it, but in a funny way. So I've always loved hiding my big goals in a joke because it's a way for me to let the world know, but it also protects and insulates my goal a little bit because I'm also precious about those goals. And Mm. there's a lot of people that are going to say, you can't retire at 35. That's impossible. And you know, there's no way and no one ever does that. And long story short, I ended up retiring. I worked as a CPA, a chartered accountant, and retired from the corporate rat race at age 31. And with hindsight, I'm sure I could have done it faster had I known what I know now. But -hmm. at the same time, had I not been willing to set that big, hairy, audacious goal, had I not been willing to just kind of take ownership of it, I'm not sure if I ever would have done it. So one of the things I've really learned with time is the importance of the reality you live in. And we all actually get to choose the world we live in. These days, I'm very focused on living in a world of abundance, you know, a a world of problem solving, you know, where everything's under my control and it's just a matter of me figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And with that sense of agency or that locus of control, it's just, it's so much easier to, you know, be the one writing your own story rather than having life happen to you. Because I find way too often, unfortunately, a lot of people have life happening to them. And it's this internal narrative that society or friends and family have really pushed upon them where it's like, oh, it's not your fault. You know, no one makes it. Millennials will never buy a house. And yet I'm looking around my peer group. I'm like, man, most of the millennials I know, like they're getting into the double digits of properties they own. And it's just because of the reality they live in because they've surrounded themselves with like-minded individuals. So for me, you know, I was really lucky that I stumbled upon the fire movement. They just happened to be posted on that one blog post and I went down that rabbit hole. But ever since then, it just became so clear to me that if we cut back our spending, if we focused on our needs versus our wants, we don't really need a lot. And that gives us a lot of power because if you can find, if you can build that financial fortress of solitude, and for me, it was just a handful of student rental properties what that meant was I could then go on to what I like to call firepreneur. And that's kind of combining the fire movement with entrepreneurship. So entrepreneurship, I think is one of the most satisfying things that a lot of creative, you know, business oriented people can get into. 
but often it comes with a lot of risk, right? We hear all kinds of statistics thrown out, like nine out of 10 businesses will fail in the first two years or five years, or it depends on your source. But we constantly hear these statistics. And it's true, but it's often true because those people, they, didn't, they weren't in a good position financially when they started the business. So they started behind the eight ball. And because they started behind the eight ball, you know, it's a constant struggle and they're always focused on how can I pay for my own personal needs, right? Like how can I keep the business alive and myself alive? Yeah. Well, the moment you're a firepreneur, once you've built that uh, fortress of financial solitude, well, now you just need to worry about like, long as the business isn't costing me a lot of money, it can stay alive indefinitely. And that's essentially what, how my YouTube channel has survived up until this point is, you know, it doesn't cost me so much that it ruins me. Right, right. I've always found it so silly that I see other investors and they'll fight to increase cash flow by $35 or $50. Meanwhile, on the other side at home, they're spending $9,000 a month on mm -hmm. dumb stuff. You know, like $35 subscriptions to Crave or, you know, or, or some other yeah. you know, <laughs> YouTube premium or some silly that they never use, right? or Amazon, you know, but, mm -hmm. um, so I always tell people like, you know, get control of your own personal finances before you start going into investments, because you could, you could shave off $4,000 a month in cash flow just on your own expenses, just getting rid of things that you don't need. You don't use. I mean, yeah. it's one thing that stuck with me and I can't remember you said it, or it was, maybe it was Mike Grosshart, but I changed my perspective of, of my, my home expenses and my food. And I looked at my food as fuel and I looked at my home as shelter. Yes. And once you grasp that, and that's all it is and get away from thinking about what other people think about you and the size of your home and the size of your vehicle, sorry, transportation was mm -hmm. the other one. It's just, it's just a means of getting to one place, you know, from one place to another. Once you grasp that, it makes everything else seem so meaningless, right? You don't need yeah. What, once we can kind of depersonalize a lot of the possessions that most of us get our egos tied up in, right? Like, yeah, exactly. To me, housing or your house is just shelter from the elements. Clothing is, again, just protection from the elements and to keep you warm. Um, your vehicle is just an A to B transportation tool. And once we start viewing it through these lens, one, you can all of a sudden identify that there's actually a lot of different alternatives to solving that solution that when you're in the traditional mindset, it's very difficult, right? Like you need a car if you have a job. That's like a very general Canadian or American sentiment, right? Like you get a job, you get a vehicle. Yeah. But once you start viewing this like, well, this is actually just an A to B transportation tool. Maybe I can live closer to work or maybe I can bike to work or maybe I can um, you know, get on public transportation and commute. And all of a sudden it starts opening up so many different options available to us that I think honestly, most of us didn't, just didn't even realize we were allowed to choose those alternatives because society had never presented us with the vast array of options available. Yeah. And then once you start looking at it that way, then you realize that, man, I'm working 30 years just to have a nice means of transportation or a mm -hmm. nice, you know what I mean? And, and it, if you think about what life is really all about and that's just spending time with your family and experiencing, you know, life, then you realize that, yeah, you don't need to be working 30 years for the luxury of it. Um, or, or at the very least, you know, t subtract the luxury for 10, 15 years, right? Build something up for yourself, build that, that foundation of, you know, real estate that's going to provide you with cash flow. then enjoy the luxury later. Yeah. And there's something really powerful about that delayed gratification and separating it, separating it in your mind. So 
I have no problem with people chasing their wants, right? Like if you want a Lambo, if you want a Ferrari, if you want something that's more than the bare minimum, absolutely go chase that. But what I'd love to see people do first is build the financial fortress of solitude. Once you know that you've got your shit covered, that you can survive indefinitely, mm -hmm. now everything becomes truly a choice. So if you want that Lambo, you just need to think to yourself, am I willing to put in the effort necessary, necessary to earn six figures so I can go buy that car? Mm -hmm. And a lot of us then will again find alternative arrangements, right? My buddy Graham Stephan, um, his sports cars, he'd often buy a used sports car. And by the time he's done using it, he could turn around and sell it. And often the actual net financial impact is minimal. And that's a great way to still get the same the same experience on a fraction of the money. So, you know, one of my favorite books when I was originally getting into this whole concept was The Millionaire Next Door. Mm -hmm. And the reason I love Dr. I think it was Thomas Stanley's uh, breakdown is he just studied real life millionaires. And it turns out that there's a lot of assumptions we make about what a millionaire is versus what a millionaire actually is. And right. so one of my biggest takeaways in that book was the average millionaire has never owned a new car. Like, let that sink in. How many of us assume that millionaires only drive fancy, brand new, off-the-showroom lot cars yeah. versus, like, they're actually driving rusty minivans. You know, they're driving economy sedans. You're thinking NBA players. You're thinking NHL players who are getting $12 million contracts. That's what you're thinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if, if you want to be an NBA player, then go ahead and be an NBA player. But most of us don't have the skills or the genetics for it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so... I don't know what the actual figure is, but I would say the very least, the minimum, 50% of the money you spend every month is on housing, right? Or shelter. And you brought up house hacking. So can you kind of explain what house hacking is for someone who doesn't understand that? Yeah, absolutely. So just to build upon what Wayne was saying there, when we're looking initially at, uh, you know, what the average Canadian spends, Stats Canada will show us that they spend directly 30, 40% of their uh, pay on shelter. And so that's going to include utilities. But once we start bundling in household consumables and stuff, it, be, it quickly chases up to 50% or even more for a lot of people. So house hacking to me is simply a way to reduce your overall housing expense. And that can actually take on a variety of different forms. So the most traditional one would either be buying a house and living with roommates or buying a multifamily property, living in one of the units and renting out the others. Now, the primary goal, in my opinion, with house hacking is to ideally get, get your shelter cost down to zero. If you can live for free, if shelter doesn't cost you anything, if you're that average Canadian, even just spending 30, 40% of their pay on shelter, well, one, you know, you can almost forget about the latte factor and literally just live for free. And you're still going to beat the average Canadian in regards to your financial growth and trajectory. Mm -hmm. But what also happens is it compounds because the amount of money we need to survive gets lessened as well. So when we can save money on our personal spending long-term, it, it, it allows us to save more money faster and it means that we need less money faster. So it's something hard for me to verbally explain, but on my YouTube channel, I've really broken it down on some examples just because I think a lot of people overlook that this is actually a double-edged sword that cuts both ways in our favor when we're focused on saving or reducing our reoccurring expenses. Mm -hmm. So let's rewind back to that age 25, age 26. How did you implement this into your life? Yeah, great question. So the very first property I bought was a student rental property. And it was an underperforming student rental property. Uh, there was 
the owner's child was living there and one of her friends. I bought the house. I moved into one of the bedrooms. The one girl living there stayed on. I had two of my buddies move in with me and start paying rent and then found another roommate on Kijiji. And so at any point in time, when I was like really in my thrifty stage, you know, I'd have four to five roommates with me, but I was literally either living for free or getting paid. And that was after all costs. So that was including like my cable, you know, all my utilities, like any miscellaneous expenses associated with the house were all covered. And it just allowed me to save so much money so much faster than where my average peer was. And right. again, I was able to save that money and then directly put it back into more real estate. It just became this little engine where I was able to outsave and out earn a lot of my peers just by making one or two really important decisions, right? Like these are the big dominoes that you'll hear people like Tim Ferriss talk about. You can mm -hmm. focus on trying to save, you know, reduce your coffee expense from a dollar a day to 50 cents a day to five cents a day. And that has an impact. But when we look on the big spending categories for the average Canadian, that's housing and transportation. If right. you get those two covered, you're probably talking 50 to 65% of your total costs are associated in those two buckets. If we can't find a way to get those two buckets down to zero, I mean, you're just set. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did that develop into to where you're staying right now? Because I obviously, you know, I've listened to your content enough to kind of know the circumstances of, of where you're at in the community that's around you. And, you know, not to ruin you know, for or, or answer your, the question, but, you know, from what I understand is that you have a very large house and it is filled with young, aspiring real estate investors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I found a way at first when the subject matter of, house hacking comes up, a lot of people view it as a sacrifice. Oh exactly. my God, I can't believe you'd live with roommates. Oh my God, you're in your thirties now and you have roommates. That's only supposed to happen for people living in New York or LA. It's mm. not supposed to happen in London, Ontario. I understand that perspective. And for certain people, it maybe won't fit their personal lives. But I actually think that along the way, we've got disconnected as a society in a lot of different ways. It was very common to have communal living, right? To be connected with your tribe or your family or both. And like, again, live in these blended situations. For mm -hmm. me, I started off house hacking with some buddies. Absolutely loved it. It was just really carrying on that feeling of college or university days, right? I personally found a lot of fun and even personal growth from that. Mm -hmm. But once I started, you know, living with other real estate entrepreneurs, other people focused on business or self-development, Again, I got the same benefits that you would living with your, your study buddies from university, right? Like all of a sudden we're constantly setting a pace for each other and we're constantly pushing each other's limits just a little bit more. So to fast forward literally where I am today, and a lot of people find this ironic, I rent out a brand new like uh, mansion that was built in London, Ontario. So just like a spec house built by uh, some spec investors that weren't able to sell it for the price they wanted. So mm -hmm. I rent it for a massive discount. Um, I operate like my business and everything out of this. I've got uh, four of my employees living in the house with me. They're also, they're all different business partners in one way or another with me. And I really love blending that. Like people talk about work-life balance. I'd rather just like make life work and work life to its fullest. So mm -hmm. for me, it's just about leaning into every opportunity. And I love the environment I'm in right now because it compels me to be the best me every day because living with these other real estate entrepreneurs 
and living with my employees, you know, there's days that Matt McKeever doesn't really want to get out of bed. And there's, I don't really need to, right? Like right. just full confession time, financially speaking, I'm fine. I'm good. I build up my financial fortress of solitude. So I'm good forever. Mm-hmm. But it's, that's also not a satisfying life. And so I went through that. And a lot of people in the fire community talk about this, that after the first, the first month, the first few months of decompressing, once you retire at a young age, you're kind of left a little empty and driftless. And for me, I'd built up a lot of my personal ego and identity as being an overachieving CPA. I was climbing the corporate ladder. You know, I, I had got to be controller of a publicly traded pharmaceutical company at a much younger age than anyone else kind of with my career path would have done. And that, that became a big part of who I was. So when I left that behind, I really found myself lacking an identity. And I've been very open and honest about this. For those first few months, I indulged in a lot of my vices. And after six months of that, I kind of woke up from a haze, looked back on it. And I was like, am I proud of what I've done? Like, what was the point of quitting the rat race if I was then just going to like waste away all my time and energy? Right. And that's when I really started wanting to create a community. And that's what we've done here in London, Ontario, is just myself and around the same time, Mike Rosehart, Dylan McLaughlin and Kellen, who co-hosts the On Fire podcast with me, we all were just kind of like exploring this idea of financial freedom through real estate investing. And I just happened to be the first one to quit. And I just kind of planted that flag of like, you know, we planted our freak flag of, you know, freaky frugality, financial independence, all that. And it turned out it resonated with a lot of people. A lot of people aren't satisfied living a normal life or just having to follow the general narrative provided to a lot of us Mm. right like go get married have 2.5 kids buy the new house the white picket fence two new vehicles in the laneway a lot of us that doesn't actually create personal satisfaction and so we started a community called london on fire and that's when i got addicted to the sense of creating communities and ever since then i've just been jumping and creating different communities because i realized the reason i started my youtube channel way back when was actually after I quit my day job and I woke up from that haze, I realized one of the problems was none of my close friends were in a position similar to me financially where they could just like hang out all day or talk about taking over the world or whatever it was that we were passionate about. Mm-hmm. And I then went on to write these really long emails trying to explain to them how they could get control of their financial lives if they would just invest in real estate for five years and follow this recipe I made. How'd but that those go? E- <laughs> yeah, those emails were long. So they were like 5,000 word long emails. So I'm sure you can imagine not a single person ever responded to them. Um, And that's when I started my YouTube channel. But I realized there that there is a community of us online. And one of the reasons I felt was important to show a Canadian real estate investor's perspective was there's amazing resources like Bigger Pockets. I love Bigger Pockets and it helped me out so much. But also because it's American, it's really easy for us Canadians to come up with bullshit excuses and be like, oh, it works in America, but burrs can't possibly happen in Canada. Right. And I wanted to show that like, man, it is. And not only does it work for me, it works for a lot of people. And that's why it's been so important for me on my YouTube channel to interview all sorts of people, people that have four kids, people that are a single parent, people that are 50 years old, like, you know, because I get it. It's really easy to look at Matt McKeever and be like white, single male, Canada, headed set, you know, no troubles. Cool. Yeah. Well, I've got like 
new immigrants to Canada that are still crushing it with Canadian real estate. So you don't got that excuses. I've got fathers of four that are crushing it. So to me, it's really just about sharing that any one of us can choose to take ownership of our lives and win. And for a lot of us, we just need that Roger Bannister. We need someone to set that four minute mile, set that pace for ourselves. Because again, had I not had the benefit of looking to the bigger pocket founders, right? Had I not had the benefit of reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or meeting haphazardly some of the real life mentors I've made, right. I probably wouldn't be here because I would have thought it was impossible. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to go back to the house hacking house of, of you know, surrounding yourself with investors, if there are any young aspiring real estate investors in Edmonton who are interested in doing like something like that here, let me know. Cause like I got a vacant house right now. I was just telling Gabby, my wife the other day, I'm like, man, I would just love to fill it with young real estate investors who just want to be mentored and build something big. Um, and, and I've said it, I think I said it to you before as well. I tell my wife frequently that like, if I hadn't met you and we didn't have a kid, I would be out in London right now with a sleeping bag banging on their door. Like, let me in. That's, that's what I want to be a part of. We don't, we don't really have that here. We've got a really great community in Edmonton, but we, I don't, we don't have what you guys have. That's, that, that's the kind of community that can empower you day to day and keep you going. Um, I love it. I love it. So if anyone is interested, you know, DM, DM me and let me know. <laughs> there's an opportunity there <laughs> yeah and i i really encourage for anyone out there that's thinking similarly like it didn't exist in london until we made it right mm-hmm. so far too often like we think of a good idea but then we never put any action into it for us again when we hosted that first meetup the four of us showed up and crossed our fingers that someone else was going to show up right like we're sitting in that bar basement you know sitting at our table we've got the handmade sign that says london on fire and we're like hope someone shows up. And that first time, maybe a dozen people total showed up counting the four of us. So we kind of already stacked the deck because we invited a bunch of our friends out. Next time it was like maybe 18 or 20. It just kept slowly ballooning. And right up before COVID-19, regularly 75, 100 people. And we've had people just for perspective, drive from like Buffalo to London, Ontario on a weeknight, just because they, they have this craving for a sense of community. And we can satisfy that through online communities like Mr. Money Mustache, Early Retirement Extreme. But there's something extra special about real life. When mm-hmm. you actually make eye contact with that person, when they mention the local whatever that they do or go to, and you're like, oh man, like this, not only does this work in theory, it works in my own backyard. Yeah, that's so cool, man. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your business. I mean, you've, man, you got all these different groups and you got different businesses and stuff. I don't even know where to start, but well, let's just maybe say, let's just talk about what you're focusing on right now. Yeah, absolutely. So my two primary focus, three primary focuses right now, four primary focuses. I've got a lot of different focuses, but my YouTube channel is a big one. So yeah. I really love the community we've built online. I'm very proud within the next day or two, we should hit 60,000 subscribers on YouTube. So that's a massive milestone. But again, we want to ever be growing. So we're literally producing a video a day on YouTube. And I'm just focused on trying to provide the videos that I wish 20 and 25 year old Matt would have seen. Mm -hmm. Because I can only imagine where I'd be today had I had access to this information. You know, technology and the internet has democratized information in a way that I think it could take centuries before humanity really catches up to how powerful this is, mm-hmm. just how free information is now. And it like gets me excited just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But so trying to help provide that information is a big part. So YouTube, 
and my social media platforms, I've actually got four full-time employees that just work in the social media business. So a lot of people don't realize how big that is. It literally, we're talking like $20,000 plus a month in just salaries. Then we get into equipment and other recurring expenses. Well, yeah, um, for, like I can tell you firsthand, like trying to keep up with guys like you and other, I can't, I can't with a family and you know what I mean? Like I can, I can do my recordings, I can edit them myself, but you definitely need help in order to grow something that large. Yeah, and again, like we're purposely, I want to, the way I view my YouTube channel is like, I've got a cable TV channel yeah. right now and I'm only producing one hour a day of new content. I really should be there 24 hours a day producing more content. So we're always trying to push the limits and figure out how to get more out of what we're currently doing. Mm. So YouTube, definitely a big chunk of my time. Then I've got my education company. So that's Cashflow Tribe. And Cashflow Tribe, again, to me is, I was so jealous of what bigger pockets had in the US. And I was so jealous of some of the different communities and masterminds I'd been exposed to in the US that I want to do something similar for Canada. So Cashflow Tribe is right now just an education company focused on just Canadian real estate. Myself and Ben Mearson, the humble CEO, we do that. And again, you know, I teach two to three live classes every week in that, as well as some premium additional classes on top. So I, I probably spend 10 plus hours a week easily just teaching directly kind of behind closed doors to the Cashflow Tribe community and get a lot of personal satisfaction from that. We're Canada's fastest growing real estate community. So we started, you know, seven, eight months ago, and we're approaching a thousand members now. Um, and again, that to me is just such a powerful vote of confidence. And mm -hmm. just feels like the accumulation of a lot of the communities I built up until this point. So I love seeing, you know, people do their first deal, because something happens, you can become jaded and comfortably numb to doing real estate deals. And I found myself that in that position where buying another duplex doesn't move the needle for Matt McKeever anymore. Mm. But for someone that's never bought a property before, it's their everything. And to get to vicariously live through their lens and experience of that is so much fun and so intoxicating, in my opinion. Um, so that's another area I spend a lot of time. Then I've got my wholesaling business. So I've got four four full-time wholesalers plus an offer specialist that work for me. And right now we'd probably be Canada's second or third largest wholesaling company. We'd love to be number one before the end of the year. So again, we're just trying to take massive actions to get the results necessary. And wholesaling's a relatively new, new business industry in general. I would say around 2016 is when I first started hearing the words. And back then I underestimated the potential behind this business. And now I'm trying to course correct because had I taken it serious back in 2016, I would be the biggest where mm -hmm. instead I got distracted with other things. So we're focused on that because I think it's a great skill set for new investors to develop. Mm -hmm. And then finally, so I've got my YouTube channel, I've got my wholesaling business, I've got Cashflow Tribe Canada. And then finally, I'm actually, I started off on my YouTube channel documenting burring small multifamily properties. Well, these days I've got a company now set up that burrs apartment buildings. So we're buying small multifamily apartment buildings, right in that 10 to 50 unit range. And usually with kind of a one year turnaround time for one to two year turnaround time for our refinance on the burr. Okay. And right now, you know, in the last six months or a year, maybe we've acquired about 
60, 70 units in that entity. So we're just kind of getting our sea legs right now with it, but we're really going to be looking to scale that up in the future. And I'm actually right now slowly uh, selling off a lot of my smaller multifamily properties just because it feels like it's the right time to trade in those green houses for the red hotel. Mm. Ooh, good, good example there. That was, that was good. That was good. And so the, the, the big red hotel is, is, yeah, red hotels. Is, is it, is it going to be larger unit buildings or? Yeah. So it's these apartment buildings and things of that nature, really focusing on just purpose built apartment buildings now that are mismanaged or poorly managed where we can go in, you know, put our spin on it try and find those efficiencies and crank up the returns on it and then refinance it. Literally the same thing that I've documented on my YouTube channel, buying shitty little duplexes. Now I'm just buying shitty little 20 plexes. So it's really just, you added another zero or two, but otherwise the concepts are very similar. Right. That's so cool, man. I want to go back to the cash flow tribe because, um, you know, I've seen, well, it is the fastest growing, you know, community. Like it's, it's all over the, it's all over the uh, social media. My question is, is that, because I don't know personally, what's the primary focus for Cashflow Tribe? Is it a specific strategy? Is it, is it like, what, what specifically are you guys focusing on on real estate investing for that? Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of different ways that a real estate education company can go about teaching real estate education. Right. For us, we view it literally as real estate is just an investment vehicle. And so it's an investment vehicle that a lot of us feel comfortable with and are naturally attracted to because it's a very simple business model compared to say other business models. So very easy to understand. And there's a lot of examples out there. So instead of teaching flipping or burrs or rent to owns or Airbnb strategy, we actually focus on two things, your return on time and whether you're trying to develop an active source of income or a passive source of income. Mm -hmm. Because again, there's a lot of different ways to make money in real estate, a lot of different strategies, and a lot of different markets that will have different strategies work versus others. Yeah. So for us, it's about, are you trying to build that active or passive income? And the one thing that we recommend to a lot of people that catches them off guard when they first join Cashflow Tribe is for most of us, the long-term goal is passive, right? We want to quit our jobs. We want that stay on the beach sort of passive cash flow, And that's awesome. Mm. But if we want to get there as fast as possible, for most of us, developing an active income source first through real estate will be the fastest way to build up that passive sort. So right. we'll talk about things like wholesaling real estate, wholetailing, which essentially is just like, you know, double ending a deal or double closing it where we're not really going to do much real work to it. Mm -hmm. Just some lipstick, um, flipping real estate, or even potentially starting like a realtor or mortgage agent business also can be other ways to first build some active income in real estate and then, uh, slowly, you know, take that, those earnings and divert them into passive income. Mm -hmm. And for like a flipper, what that could look like just to give, I want to make sure I give some tactical advice here today too. So for a flipper, if you're looking to slowly transition to passive income, one of the ways you might actually do that is rather than going out then and trying to buy an apartment building, maybe when you're flipping your uh, flip properties, you actually take back a second place mortgage as part of your profit. So rather than take all the profit in cash, we start building up a small business of notes now or mortgages. Mm. And now you're going to have a small trickle of passive income from all these different notes. Um, same with like a lot of burr investors or a lot of people that want to get into apartment buildings. We often find that first you're better off 
finding deals and getting really good at finding those deals. So becoming a wholesaler, once you build up that skill set of getting good at negotiating, really being able to analyze and run numbers fast, it becomes a lot easier to spot those diamonds in the rough or the value add opportunities. So we really take a heavy focus on that. The, the other thing I'll hit upon here is return on time. So to me, and I get some flack because a lot of my YouTube channel is very tactical oriented. So once I start saying things like ret return on time, people are like, oh, so he's getting into guru mode now. He's just going to give me some fluff that doesn't really mean anything. The one thing I want to challenge anyone when they hear something like, don't focus on cash on cash, focus on return on time. And mm -hmm. you immediately start going, oh, this is all, you know, woo woo stuff. If time isn't your most precious asset today, understand that you, that's your goal. Mm -hmm. That literally should be your goal, right? Because it's the one finite resource we have. There's always more money. If you didn't believe there was more money, just go ask the US Fed. And once you realize they can just mint a trillion dollar coin, trust me, you're going to understand there's always more money out there. <laughs> but time is something literally, you know, we can buy it back in pieces by outsourcing aspects of our life, but we can never get it back. Mm -hmm. And for me, I really want people to focus on return on time because I came up through the fire movement, right? And the fire movement preaches a lot of frugality. But unfortunately, a lot of us confuse, and myself included, frugality and cheapness. And they're actually quite different. Cheapness is always focused on price. Frugality is focused on value and quality versus price. So for me, a lot of us, when we first start out real estate investors, we're going to DIY it, right? We're going to mud our own properties. We're going to do our own demo. We're going to do all the construction ourselves. We're going to install those dishwashers ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's great to a point, but just understand a lot of us accidentally build a job for ourselves rather than a business when it comes to real estate investing. And one of the things we really want people to focus on with Cashflow Tribe is if your goal is to build a business or build passive income, we want you to achieve that. We don't want you just to be able to get to brag about 10 doors. We want you to brag about the cash flow those 10 doors make you. Because again, sometimes our ego can get the best of us when it comes to real estate investing. And I see that local networking events all the time where people are bragging about their number of doors. And again, it's a matter of fact, I know social media, people love the fact that I've got more than a hundred doors, mm -hmm. but my business partner, Ben Mearson, I don't even know if he owns any rental properties, but he's done over $22 million in private financing. He's got a massive mortgage company. And I look at that and I'm like, damn, I wish I had that. Cause that seems like much more truly passive income than my rental properties. Mm. But naturally a lot of us want our egos to jump up and be like, Oh, that's different. Like real estate doors. And it's like, no real estate's just an investment vehicle. And so we definitely need to, you know, separate our emotions from the facts. And we focus a lot on data, not drama when it comes to cash flow tribe. Yeah. And I think that that's just a really important adage that all of us could live by, especially during COVID-19, focus on the data, not the drama. Yeah. Yeah. And I am, it's funny that you brought that up about the second mortgage flipping thing, because Ben brought it up two weeks ago with me. And I was just like, holy crap. I didn't know that. I'm a pretty creative real estate investor. I never thought about that. So what I did is I instantly went and called my mortgage broker because I need to know, <laughs> right? And, and to, 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 for everyone that's listening specifically so that you guys are following along, um, how, we, how you guys essentially explain it is that you're flipping properties and then you're, you're, you're finding a buyer and you're giving them a second mortgage to cover their down payments, right? 
So they can yeah. go to a secondary lender and, and you're able to leave your profits in there, but you're also lending it out at a higher interest rate. So it's delayed gratification, but you're making a good return on your profits, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you find a lender that allow them to do that? That's where I, I hit the roadblock. I'm like, cause I, I don't, I don't accept no. You know, I, I was about to call a second That's lender. That's the most important another, thing. I was, I was yeah. going to call another broker. Then I started asking around and everyone's like, nope, 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 nope. Because CMHC changed the rules. You can't do it anymore. They only lend up to 90% LTV. So since I got you here and you brought yeah. it up, do you mind yeah, providing, <laughs> answering yeah, that so for me? There's a handful of different ways we can parse this out. But I really want to hit upon what you mentioned there first is like, just never accepting them. Mm -hmm. That was my biggest mistake back in 2015. I was going for my fifth mortgage and CIB said, said, no, you can't do it. Like no one gets more than five mortgages or whatever. And I was like, I'm pretty sure there's Canadians that own more than five properties. And they're like, yeah. go double your income. I literally changed career paths, switched from public accounting into private industry <laughs> so I could go double my income so that I could qualify for another mortgage. So in theory, I didn't accept no, but I probably should have like actually re-asked the question a few more times. Mm -hmm. So back to your point, Wayne, um, if we're looking at flipping and taking back notes or paper for our profit or portion of our profit, you know, yes, the A lenders, they're not going to love this strategy. So there's a handful of solutions that uh, your listeners could potentially look at. One is in theory, it doesn't have to be registered against the property if there's enough trust in that relationship, right? So maybe you already, for whatever reason, again, everyone has to do their own due diligence. But one, in theory, you may not register it, which solves that problem. And now you can do it with eight lenders. That's what the I second op Yeah, the second option would be if we go into uh, non-A lenders, then we start to get some opportunity. I can't say exactly what it's like in Alberta, but I know that there's credit unions here in Ontario, Canada, that will consider allowing you having a small second place. They may not love it if that second place takes you 100% loan to value, but again, we can dial that in. So if you find that you found a great credit union that will let you do this, but you can only take an 85 or 90% loan to value, well, in that case, now we're going to take five or 10% back rather than the full 20% as our note. So right. that's another option. Uh, and now, when you say for, a note, what do you mean? Just so that we're following. So a note could literally just be a promissory note, right? right? So just a piece of paper. If you want, you can go get notarized. You can sign in front of a lawyer. It's really up to yourself to determine what level of comfort you want around that paper promise. Mm -hmm. But understand it's pretty much a paper promise at that point. So right. you can enforce it, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be considered as safe of an investment as if it was registered on title um, the way a mortgage is. So. Right. There's that to consider. Now, depending upon, again, who you're flipping to, I do a lot in the small multifamily space with wholesaling deals. And if I wanted to, I could probably do a lot of turnkey small multifamily properties. In that case, my likely buyers may not be individuals. They might be investors. And so investors own other properties. So what I might be able to do alternatively, instead of place my, uh, my mortgage on the property I'm selling, I might be able to cross collateralize and pick a property they already own. Mm. So let's say they've owned a property for a year or two and you know, they've already got their existing mortgage in place. I can just come in afterwards in second place and put a tag on that. Right. And now again, I protected myself because the paper promise, the paper agreement I have is now backed up by a different piece of real estate. And so again, 
if you guys aren't familiar with this, I know some of this might be high level, but just Google like cross collateralize and that'll hopefully help plant the seed as far as how you can take this. Right. Um, and again, there's other things that you can do if you want to get more creative things like option to purchases and more exotic, uh, you know, structures that we can do like that. Uh, but to me, it really just comes down to getting creative and understanding where there's a will, there will be a way. It just may not look the same in every jurisdiction or in every market. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, for me, there's a lot of power there. And the one last thing I'm going to plant, if you're new to the idea of doing all this, a lot of people are also new to the idea of interest-only payments when it comes to these sort of second-place mortgages. Mm -hmm. And so this is how you can make it really attractive to the end user is interest-only payments which means they're not actually going to pay a lot on a month-to-month -month basis. So let's say I'm taking back a $30,000 note or a $30,000 second-place mortgage, and it's 10% interest only. Well, they're only going to pay about $3,000 a year in interest. It's like right. $280 a month. That doesn't sound like a lot. And so what that ends up actually doing is, not only can we make money off this paper, but often you'll find you'll be able to actually sell your property for a premium because people are like, ooh, the fact that I can get in for less than 20% down, I'm yeah. willing to pay a little bit more because otherwise I didn't think it was possible for me to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, those are all, believe it or not, those are like the simpler, easier answers. The big answer, which is what Ben did, was you literally arbitrage. So what Ben does is he doesn't only necessarily do the second place mortgage, he might also do the first place mortgage for them. Right. So what he's doing is I'll borrow at five or 6% interest Relend it out at 10%. I now make the spread, but again, I can charge that premium in regards to the price I can sell my property for. And I'm now building out this passive income stream, both of second mortgages and the first mortgage. First mortgage, I'm just making a slight spread. Maybe I'm not even going to make a spread if it's that important to me. But again, it's just a matter of figuring out how it's exactly going to work, the mechanics in your, mm -hmm. in your industry or in your market. But to me, there's just something really powerful about this structure because a lot of people don't see how to break out of the active stream into the passive without mm -hmm. just doing buy and holds. And there are other options available for us. Yeah, I mean, being a lender is, is way better than being a landlord, that's for sure, right? Seems to work <laughs> out for the big five banks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, you know, from the way he, he explained it was that it's, you, you're, you're better positioned as well. It, you're, it's, it's less riskier. Um, yeah. I mean, especially in Ontario, Ontario yes. <laughs> uh, landlord uh, act is, uh, is, 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 is not as good as ours in, 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 uh, in Alberta. So we're, we're, th we're thankful for that. But uh, thank you very much for clarifying that because that is, you know what, like I say it all the time, there's normally one thing that's preventing you from taking action. And that was the one thing. So I'm glad you answered it for me because I can go literally take action. now. I love <laughs> I'm going to figure it out. Hell yeah. You know, I, I love real estate investing and I love, you know, uh, providing, you know, houses for free, for people and renting them out. But again, um, what's most important to me is spending time with my family and, and growing with them and not dealing with the random emails that we get mm -hmm. for silly things. Right. So um, that is my goal as well to kind of gravitate away from that and start being a lender or start being, you know, doing more creative things that get me more time with my family. So thank you very much for that. And Matt, um, I think that's a good time to wind things down. I, you know, on behalf of the investor community, I, I want to thank you for everything that you do and all the content that you put out. I mean, that is a crap ton of content that's free and 
and and the community is is very very thankful for it <laughs> i appreciate that that means a lot because that's honestly why i do it it's just yeah it's just it's so much fun doing this together and having that true sense of community and mm-hmm. we do have it canada's a really it's a big country in a landmass sort of way but it's a small country when it comes to a real estate investor community and to me it's been so much fun because i'm sure you've experienced it as well like by just planting yourself out there by putting yourself out there it doesn't take long before you get to connect with all kinds of amazing other canadian real estate investors because of the power of social media mm-hmm. yeah it, it's good to know that especially in, in in your in your circle of your family your friends it, it can feel kind of lonely sometimes so mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to connect with other people who get it you know the other outliers so thank you very much again for for clearing up a lot of my questions along the way <laughs> happy to um, if people are interested in Cashflow Tribe or they want to contact you, what way do you prefer uh, they reach out to you? Absolutely. So you can check out Cashflow Tribe just at cashflowtribe.ca or cashflowtribecanada.com. Um, or if you want to get a hold of me, you should be able to find me on any social media platform these days. So we're literally everywhere YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, doesn't matter. We've got a presence there. Um, one of my favorite ways to connect is always in my YouTube comment section, just because not only does that allow me to interact, but other people can view and also consume the information there. Um, so really encourage you guys. If you're looking for more Canadian uh, content, I've got over 650 hours now, or 650 videos, sorry, on YouTube alone. So there's a ton there. I'd like to think of it as a PhD in real estate. Everything I've learned, I've tried to break down and explain on my channel. And yeah, absolutely put the comments in there because also it also helps support your page as well. So it you know, throw them some support, throw a coin to, uh, to Matt McKeever <laughs> and uh, you know, subscribe to that channel and then everything else he's doing. Matt, thank you again. Thanks, Wayne.